0: Hello and welcome to Disastrous History. My name is Anthony, and I am the host of this wonderful mess of a show that will attempt to chronicle some of the biggest and most interesting disasters, messes, and all-around screw-ups that have happened throughout the centuries. Hello and welcome to another episode of Disastrous History. This week is going to be an interesting one, and probably the first disaster that would be an excellent band name. Today we're going to talk about the Donora Death Fog. Now, before we start, we need to discuss some things. First, we have actually done a fog-related disaster already. The Big Bayou Cannot disaster was pretty much a fog disaster, but in that, I didn't really talk about fog or its causes or anything like that, so we need to discuss that. We also need to discuss the differences between fog and smog, because there is a difference. So let's start with fog. Fog is caused by moist air being cooled to its dew point, and the water condenses in the air and then just kind of hangs there for a while. Now, there are different kinds of fog. The first type, and most common, is called radiation fog. Radiation fog occurs when there's a clear night and no wind. As the heat from the earth absorbed from the day radiates out into space and cools off, warm, moist air near the ground will reach its condensation point and form fog. The fog you see in the valleys in places like Appalachia and the Rockies and the Ozarks is radiation fog. It just starts off with the air mass on the ridges, which then becomes dense and heavy and slides down the mountainsides into the valleys where it cools off more and condenses into fog. That's what gives the the Ozarks and the Appalachians that really cool, like, fog-in-the-valley look. The next type we have is freezing fog. It's basically the same as above, except everything it touches is so cold it freezes. The next type we have is called advection fog. Advection fog is caused by warm, moist air moving across a cold surface. This is the reason San Francisco is so famous for its fog. Warm, moist air from the Pacific travels along and hits cooler water around the area of the Golden Gate Bridge, where it then condenses into the world-famous fog that is so common in photographs of the Golden Gate Bridge and San Francisco in general. There are other types of fog, like hail fog, where a hailstorm drops hail into a mass of warm. Moist air near the surface. I've said moist a lot in this episode already, and I don't like it. Anyway, warm, moist air near the surface. As the hail falls and begins to build up on the ground, it cools the air directly above the hail, the piece of hail to its dew point and creates low-lying fog. It almost looks like smoke coming up out of the, the area of the hail. So, that's a really quick crash course in fog. Pretty simple stuff. But what is Smog. It looks like fog, it acts like fog, but what is it exactly? The actual word smog is just smoke and fog combined together. And that's because smoke and fog were the first smog. That was the first smog reporting was a bunch of smoke and a bunch of water vapor condensed in the air and it made smog so that it looked like fog, so they named it smog. We're not really creative with our naming as a human race. What we are good at, as a human race, is uh, creating new types of terrible things. There are now two types of smog. There's winter smog and summer smog. Or, if you'd prefer, London smog and Los Angeles smog, as they're relatively commonly known. Summer summer smog... Summer smog... Man, try and say summer smog five times fast. That's difficult. Anyway... Summer smog is scientifically called photochemical smog. It's also called Los Angeles smog, as I just mentioned, mostly because it was first identified there in the 1950s. Summer smog is made up of exhaust from cars and industrial exhaust from industrial plants that interact with sunlight. So, basically, during the morning rush hour, cars do their normal thing, drive to work in a terrible job they hate, blah, 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 go talk to somebody at the water cooler about literally something that you could not care any less about, then go back to your cubicle and then have to drive home an hour later and sit in traffic. As they drive along, they emit exhaust made up of nitrogen oxides and volatile organic compounds. These then interact with sunlight to create ozone, which is trioxygen, so three oxygen atoms, and nitric and sulfuric acid. Some industrial places emit sulfur dioxide, which then oxidizes in the atmosphere into sulfuric acid, as well as some other particulate matter. And the sunlight here is a very important part because you wouldn't have this smog without the sunlight. The sunlight helps to oxidize and interact with uh, these matter, particulate matters that are given off and changed them into what we know as the smog in L.A. And this is why it's so prominent in L.A., or was so prominent in L.A. It's because L.A. is warm, dry, and it is always sunny all the time. It also has a ridiculous number of motor vehicles. So it was really the perfect storm in creating this smog. It's why pictures from before catalytic converters were invented That's why smog pictures of L.A. are so common. All of this combines to create breathing issues like coughing and shortness of breath and irritation of your respiratory airway and things like that. The particulate matter can also be breathed in and then embed in your lungs, which obviously causes problems, or can move into your bloodstream, which also causes problems. So that's summer smog. But what is winter smog? Winter smog is the smog we all think of as associated with London. It's thick and smelly and hangs over everything. This smog is generally confined to the wintertime because it is caused by the increased burning of fossil fuels for heating in winter, at least historically. So in London, they burn a lot of soft coal for increased heat when it's cold in the wintertime, and it just kind of hangs around. Now, this kind of smog can happen anywhere, but it's been happening so regularly in London that it's become a part of its history. It's literally called pea soup fog because of the yellowish, nasty color that it gives off and how thick it gets. It's been happening in London since at least the 1200s and was at least attempted to be banned by King Edward I by proclamation in 1306, because of how bad the smog became. It's one of the earliest known attempts at trying to curb smog. We don't really know how serious this attempt at preventing the burning of smog was, but it was at least a real proclamation, so it was at least somewhat of a nuisance. In fact, London had a death smog of their own in 1952 that is estimated to have killed between 4,000 and 10,000 people. We don't really know exactly how many people died of the fog because it's really hard to say, like, oh yeah, this person who died, you know, two or three days after it ended died from complications from the fog, or this person who died, you know, six months later died from complications they received from the fog. That's one of those, that hard thing to determine. But it did kill a ton of people in the four days it hung over London during the Great Smog of 1952. Now, one of the things that combines fog and smog together is a lot of times smog will help cause fog. So you'll have water vapor in the air that is condensing on particulate matter in the smog. So you'll have, especially if you do the winter smog, because you'll have a bunch of small, tiny smoke particles, and in order to create fog, you need the water to be able to condense on something. And it's going to be able to condense on those tiny smoke particulates. So when you have smog, you also have fog. It's kind of a, they go hand in hand. Sometimes you can have smog without fog, and obviously you can have fog without smog, but oftentimes they go hand in hand together. So that brings us to a small Allegheny mountain city in western Pennsylvania, Donora. Denora is located about 25 or so miles south of Pittsburgh, right in a bend of the Monongahela River, surrounded by hills on all sides. And, seriously, Pennsylvania, why are all of your rivers so hard to pronounce? It's like you're trying to do this to me. This happened with the Johnstown Flood episode. It's like you're trying to make things so difficult to pronounce, just so that you know that people aren't from the Pittsburgh area. Denora was much like any western Pennsylvania town. It was founded in 1900 when the Union Steel Company opened a steel mill in the area in 1908. The steel mill was taken over by the American Steel and Wire Works. From there, Denora has had a interesting history. A huge chunk of the men in Denora allegedly gave fake addresses to the draft board for World War I to protest the draft, which is, you know, pretty cool. Then a strike occurred in 1919 in which most likely striking workers blew up the homes of two men who crossed the picket lines with dynamite. In 1915, the Donora Zinc Works opened in Donora as well. The steel plant occupied the extreme southern portion of the riverfront, the wire plant occupied the center portion of the riverfront, and the zinc works occupied the northern portion of the riverfront. So basically, you've got The steel works, which sends completed steel into the wire works a little ways up. And then you've got a bridge over it. And then north of the bridge, you have a zinc works. Now, these three, basically two plants, but three plants in general, are extremely important here. The mills employed huge percentages of the town. It was something like 60%. Because that's just how these towns worked they were the only employer there so they employed most of the people you'd have the men come in and would work in the steelworks and then other people would work at different places they needed in the town like a grocery store and stuff like that but still the vast percentage of people in the town worked for the town the company town like the company mill it wasn't quite a company town because it was a bit bigger than that But it was pretty close. And it was pretty close to a company town because both plants were owned by U.S. steel. The steel mill produced wire, nails, barbed wire, welding rods, and other things like that. The zinc works produced zinc, cadmium, unrefined lead, and, well, sulfuric acid. The zinc works in particular had caused major problems for the city of about 14,000 people. It is alleged that for a mile around the plant, nothing would grow in the ground because of zinc and cadmium pollution from the plant. Farmers regularly complained that their livestock died, that their crops died, and they could not get anything to grow anywhere near the zinc plant. Eventually, the residents of Denora banded together multiple times to sue U.S. Steel for polluting the town, claiming it was causing health problems and killing all of their Livestock and crop. U.S. Steel was able to use their money to outlast the lawsuits from the town people, but they did at least attempt to make the area less terrible. They attempted to modify their smelting furnaces to make them pollute slightly less, although it did not succeed. Now, there were a lot of pollutants that were being pushed out by the zinc works, but there were three main ones that were being produced from the smokestacks sulfuric acid, nitrogen dioxide, and fluorine, as well as some others in smaller quantities. On a normal operating day, the wind would just take all these pollutants and spread them out over the area, which is, you know, still terrible, but keeps them below killing people levels. Now, don't get me wrong, Denora had smog regularly, but it was seen as a nuisance at most. Nothing like what was about to occur had ever been seen in Denora. So that brings us to the morning of October 27, 1948. Now normally, in normal atmospheric layering, you have cold air high up and warmer air down low. This is because the higher air is at a lower pressure, which means a lower temperature, and the air lower to the ground is at a higher temperature because of the warming from the sun and it is also at a higher pressure. But occasionally you'll get a situation where a cooler, denser air mass has settled close to the ground and a warmer, less dense air mass moves into the same place. Instead of moving the colder, denser air out, the warm air travels up and sits on top of the colder, denser air. This is what is called a temperature inversion. If the cooler air is sufficiently humid enough, fog can begin to form. And because there is no air movement at all, the fog just sits there until something from outside the area breaks the inversion cap and gets things moving again. And it isn't just fog that stays. It is any particular matter generated in the area. It's just not going to go anywhere. There's no wind. There's no movement. It just sits there. This is what happened to NONORA on that fateful morning in October of 1948. A cold mass of air settled into NONORA. Then a warm mass of air settled on, in on top of that cold mass of air, and then there was no wind. But it's not just the air causing a problem here, because like temper- temperature inversions happen anywhere, but there was a particular issue with the location of Denora that made this even worse. If you go to Google Maps and look at a street view of Denora, literally just pick a random spot in Denora hopefully one that you can, you know, look around, and do a 360 view of wherever you are, you'll notice something. The city sits in a flat spot in the bend of the Monongahela River, but surrounding it on literally all four sides are steep hills. What do hills do when you're down in basically a valley? They block wind. Now... If that temperature inversion is sitting below the tops of those hills and that warm air mass is just sitting there, it's never going to break. It's just going to sit there. So anything that is being created in that valley is not going to go anywhere. It's just going to fall straight back down to the ground and sit there and not move. Early in the morning on Monday, October 24th, 1948, the smog began to form and the residents of Denora really didn't think anything of it. I mean, why would they? It happened literally all the time. The two plants were in town were constantly belching smoke and whatever other garbage out, and it regularly would hang around the area, making it foggy and smoggy. Eventually, the wind would blow it away, and they'd get on with their lives of living next to a giant furnace of poisonous gas. They would regularly have to wash curtains weekly to get the smoke stain off. Their clothes would get dirty from walking outside and they'd have to wash them. And not just from, you know, existing and being sweaty or whatever. They would literally walk outside, come home and be black or dark colored clothes because of the smog in the air. That was normal life for them. And one, many people were content to deal with because, well, the smog meant jobs jobs that many of them had a struggle to find just a decade earlier in the midst of the Great Depression. That's one of the things that often gets overlooked in these disasters and terrible working conditions of the late 30s and 40s. It sucked, and the jobs were rough, and they were getting sick, but at least they were making money to feed their families. Many of these workers either watched their families starve or were doing the starving through the Great Depression. If keeping their families clothed and fed and housed meant working in atrocious conditions... Well, who am I to argue with that? I'd do the same for my own family. If it meant having to go work in a warehouse full of absolute garbage particulate matter in the air that I'm breathing in all the time just so that my kids and my wife can eat and have clothes and have toys and have the chance at a better life than I had, then hell yeah, I'm absolutely going to do that. So they dealt with having to walk home for lunch with this. Street lights on because the smog blocked out the sun. They dealt with constantly having black soot on their shirts because the smog left a thin layer of soot on them. They dealt with the coughing and the sneezing and the hacking and the terrible smell. They dealt with everything they owned always being soot covered because they owned something. They had money to spend on things. It meant they had a home and food and some form of happiness. These workers were exploited and taken advantage of advantage of for sure. They were absolutely exploited, exploited. They were absolutely taken advantage of. They were absolutely being abused and used by their employers so that their employers could make extra money. They were used and abused and murdered through negligence and incompetence and sometimes malicious intent also the company could make another dollar. But many of them were grateful. They may have hated it and they may have felt like they didn't have any other recourse than to suffer but it kept them fed they can be both grateful to have their jobs and know it was terrible and also be abused and not know that there were any better options both of those things can be true one of the residents of the nearby town of Monongahela Dwayne Patterson who lived in Monongahela at the time of the death smog literally said things were tough back then and you knew the mines and the mills were unsafe but they put bread on the table bread and butter on the table anyway back to our story here Tuesday passed without major incident it was smoggy but not any more than normal then it got worse on Wednesday one resident of Denora who was 12 years old at the time Mrs. Joanne Crow recalled that it was so dark on Wednesday that her dad couldn't drive her to school so he led her there on foot with a flashlight and then it truly started to become unbearable on Thursday, October 27th, 1948. That's when it started to get real dark. Like, dark, dark. The streetlights had already been on, but at this point were barely helping and people really began to cough. It continued to get worse and worse throughout Thursday. People walking home were literally getting lost walking ways they had walked their entire lives, because they couldn't see their own feet. It was so foggy. They had no references to guide them home, literally couldn't see the streetlights from the ground. Like, the streetlights were on, but they couldn't see the lights because it was so thick. They were trying to walk off the sidewalk onto the street, and were tripping and falling because they couldn't see their own feet. They were constantly coughing. They were trying to hide from the terrible smell. They were wearing masks, They were putting their shirts over their faces to try and get some form of filter between the terrible outside and the oxygen going into their lungs. Pets and livestock began to pass out and die. Houseplants inside people's houses literally began to wither and die in their pots just from this smog. This was one of the worst instances of smog in Denora that anyone could remember by Thursday, but it was just the beginning. Friday was when the smog went from dark and kind of bad to downright terrifying for the residents of Donora. It was straight out of a horror movie. Sunday was Halloween, so they had planned their annual Halloween parade for Friday the 29th, and despite the terrible conditions, they continued on with the parade. Well, allegedly continued on with the parade because literally no one could see the parade the fog was so thick many of the residents reported that they literally couldn't see the floats it was just vague shadows kind of moving through the dark smog almost looked like they were floating by it was so dark Now, I have to admit, a ghostly Halloween parade through thick, dark smog seems pretty cool uh, if it didn't smell terrible and it was almost impossible to breathe. Because Friday afternoon is when people really began to struggle to breathe properly. One nurse who worked at the American Steel and Wire Company, Eileen Loftus, reported that she first received a patient at about 4 p.m. Friday afternoon, gasping and wheezing in a panic unable to get oxygen into his lungs. Eventually, she had so many workers receiving oxygen in her nurse's office, she ran out of beds and exam tables, so they were on desks and on the floor. People walking home were struggling to breathe, were coughing or hacking, and were running into telephone poles and parked cars. They were bumping into walls and, again, just unable to see literally anything. People had to start crawling around on all fours on the ground just to make sure they were getting to the right place because they were afraid they were going to trip and fall and injure themselves if they were walking. Emergency calls began on Friday in earnest. People scared to death and coughing and needing assistance. Doctors throughout Donora began to make house calls to patients desperate for oxygen. They would provide them oxygen for just a few minutes, then move on to the next. An ambulance was being used at one point Friday to try and help care for victims, but one of the doctors had to walk in front of it with a flashlight to help guide it because they couldn't see to drive. Then, they couldn't drive at all. The cars wouldn't start, the smog was so thick. On Friday evening between 7 and 8 p.m., firefighter Bill Shimp received a call from his fire chief that he had to bring oxygen to residents. So, he strapped on his oxygen tank and began to walk house to house, giving people oxygen for just a minute, then moving to the next house. Eventually, he too found it that the air became so thick and so dark that he had to crawl from house to house, feeling his way along the ground to get into the next place to give someone a quick hit of air before being forced to leave them and move on to the next person. He'd give them a 5 or 10 second shot of air, wait a few minutes, then give them another 5 to 10 second shot of air, and then leave. He was being forced to make the decision on who was going to get oxygen and who wasn't. Basically, having to decide who was going to live and who was going to die. As he was crawling from house to house, he would be radioed by Chief John Volk telling him where the next emergency call was coming from. And... I have to explain this a bit better because as firefighters you are trained in how to crawl below the smoke layer because in in a fire the smoke's up high and you go in and you crawl down so that you have a little bit better um visibility and also the smoke layer is really hot so you don't want to be standing in it now what's happening here is there is no like upper layer smoke layer it's thick all the way down but You're trained as a firefighter on how to crawl through dark situations. But there's a problem because as a firefighter, when you receive this training, you are doing it in a confined building. So there is a defined edge of everywhere you're going. So like say you're doing, you're searching a house. You go in the house, you drop to your hands and knees, you stick one arm on the wall, say your right arm. If you're going to do a right hand search, you stick your right side on that wall And you maintain contact with that wall as you go through the entirety of the house. So you're always up against a wall. Like, you're always up against the right wall. No matter where you go, you stick to that right side. What he is doing is he is crawling through a town. Now, you can't do a right-hand search through a town. Because there isn't always an exterior. There are roads. So there's wide open spaces you have to cross. You have no idea if someone's driving. You have no idea if someone's running by. You have no idea where anything is because you can't see. You don't know what street you're on. You don't know what house number you're at. You have no idea. The other issue is the people in those houses also have no idea what's going on. So all of a sudden... They're terrified and struggling to breathe and all of this, and this man just busts in their front door. Hopefully he announces beforehand, but who knows if you actually hear him. Then you have a situation of there's a stranger in your house, it's dark and foggy, you have no idea what's going on, your family members are choking and struggling to breathe, and random man wearing a mask just busts in wearing a helmet and a coat and a giant bottle on his back. That is terrifying, no matter who you are. So this man is just doing the most. It is absolutely impressive that he was able to go through and give so many people oxygen when he has literally no idea where he's going. He can't see the street signs because they're so far up, and it's so smoggy that you can't see it. can't see his own feet when he stands up, Can barely see the end of his own hand, and he's dragging this oxygen tank through town, crawling on his hands and knees, trying to save people. He did this from Friday night until Sunday morning, with no breaks. The entire time, went through the town, crawling, hands and knees, to give people oxygen. But he wasn't the only one. Assistant Fire Chief Russell Davis did the exact same thing. Got his oxygen tank got in his hands and knees, crawled from house to house throughout this whole town, trying desperately to save as many people as possible. It's also said that Fire Chief John Voke did the same thing, on top of radioing to the other tube where they needed to go next. Now there's a quote from Fire Chief John Voke that I haven't been able to confirm is a real quote, but it's fantastic and I'm going to tell you guys anyway. In the aftermath of the smog, they asked Chief John Volk what he was doing. And basically said that he was going around giving oxygen to people. And they asked him if, they took, if he took some of the oxygen himself to keep him going. And he said, and this is the alleged quote, I never took any oxygen for myself. I would go back to the station and take a single shot of whiskey and then go back out and give more oxygen. Which is just... I can't think of a more badass way to respond to that question. Did you take oxygen in this smog that literally killed people? Nope. Just took some whiskey and moved on. Like, that's cool, man. But unfortunately for some, the help would come too late. The first death is generally agreed to have occurred at around 2 a.m. on Saturday, October 30th, 1948. That was unbeknownst to most of the town. They just thought it was a really bad smog that they didn't really know what to do with. But Saturday afternoon, the Donora Dragons had a high school football game to play against their rivals, the Monongahela Wildcats. It took spectators a while to climb the hill up to Legion Field because the fog was so dense they could barely see to walk. And, fresh reminder, this is the middle of the day, so... Yeah, they couldn't see to walk in the middle of the day. Uh, one spectator at the game, Mr. Peral Brown, said that they literally couldn't see the players. You could occasionally see them punt, you could hear the kick, but then the ball would disappear. Both teams literally did not throw the ball at all. If they did, they'd lose sight of it. <laughs> there was no point. There are stories of a player being called over the PA to go home for an urgent manner and arriving home to find their father had died. But the story that is commonly attributed to one player very much did not leave the game midway through since he scored Denor's only touchdown in the fourth quarter. So, if you see a story about a player being called home in the middle of the game to find their father had died, it is not true. There are rumors that there was another player, a second-string player, who was called home, but there isn't any name associated with in the end, Denora would lose the game to Monongahela 27-7 in a game that was never close and was described as a beatdown, which, in the long run, really doesn't matter considering, you know, the fact that walking home from the game involved crawling along the ground to make sure they didn't trip and fall and run into anything. From that first death at 2am on Saturday until about noon Saturday, 10 more people died. Thousands of people were impacted with various respiratory and cardiac issues, but the fog still hadn't lessened yet. All day Saturday, people tried in vain to leave Denora, but the roads were clogged with cars and people that couldn't see five feet in front of them, and the cars couldn't even start, let alone actually evacuate anyone. Every hospital and clinic in the town was completely packed full of people desperate for oxygen and clean air. And just so we're very clear here, the steel mill and the zinc works continued to run this entire time despite the very clear signs that this smog was getting significantly worse and it being very, very obvious what was producing this terrible smog. They continued to run right up until about 6 a.m. Sunday morning when U.S. Steel told them to turn off the smelters to see if that would help prevent more smog. Finally, by midday on Sunday, Halloween of 1948, the fog began to disperse from a rainstorm moving in, and Denora's multi-day disaster straight out of a horror movie was over. At least, visibly. In the end, 20 people would die during or in the immediate days after the smog dissipated. Over the next several days, months, and years, more residents of Denora would die from complications from those four days in 1948. Several residents went on what were called clean-air vacations, but died from respiratory issues in the months afterwards. One of the most famous victims of the Donora death fog was Lucas Musial, father of Stan the Man Musial, a Hall of Fame baseball player for the St. Louis Cardinals. Barely hours after the fog dispersed, an investigation began into what caused the fog. Immediately, fingers were pointed at the Zinc Works because the thing has been pushing out dense, terrible-smelling smoke for about 40 years and literally killed everything growing within a mile of the plant is the obvious place to start. But there was a problem with that. Remember how I said the plants employed a huge chunk of the town? And those plants were owned by the same company? Yeah, that means that six of the seven borough councilmen were employees of U.S. Steel. And not just regular employees, Supervisory employees, if they came down too hard on the mills, then they feared that could mean loss of jobs, and loss of jobs means closing mills, and closing me- mills means they lose their jobs. It's not that they didn't want some sense of a responsibility placed on the zinc works, they did, but they didn't want it to go overboard and cost everyone their jobs and basically cost the town its entire existence. They wanted a local ordinance that would help curtail some of the worst of the zinc works pollution, but believed that a state sponsored investigation would whitewash the zinc works and not lay any blame at their feet. So they requested the newly formed United States Public Health Service to perform an investigation, thinking that they would have the gall to place some blame on the zinc works and give them the ammunition they needed to help implement something in the town. Because they needed proof that there was actually a serious problem to implement these changes, to implement something to to get the zinc works to change their policies to help prevent uh, more pollution. It, they, Pittsburgh had done something in the years previous when they'd had a major pollution problem, but they were able to prove that some of the pollution was coming from these factories, and that gave them the ammunition to make this ordinance. So they needed. Something official saying the Zinc Works caused the majority of this pollution. The Zinc Works was the reason this was so bad, and we need to do X, Y, and Z to help prevent that from happening again. That uh, wish would not be granted. The USPHS, that's really hard to say, refused to do an investigation saying it was an atmospheric anomaly. Basically saying that there was... The reason that it happened was because of the temporary inversion, not because there was excess pollution from anything. And then U.S. Steel formally stated they accepted no responsibility for the disaster, saying that it was an act of God, because of course they did. This is the standard big business excuse for any disaster that was clearly their fault that they don't want to admit to, just say it was an act of God staring directly at you, South Fork Hunting and Fishing Club, located just 18 miles away, where some 60 years earlier you claimed an active god blew up your dam that was built of manure and dirt and random things you found lying around. Anyway, then the USPHS decided that they did want to investigate the incident, strangely enough, Conveniently, U.S. Steel also commissioned an investigation into the event. Their results were about what you would expect. The investigation was under the instruction of a man by the name of Dr. Robert Kehoe. Dr. Kehoe's basic theory was that pollution had always existed, but had been marginally increased during recent industrialization of the United States post-World War II. He then contended that only sustained high doses of exposures of hazardous materials could cause problems, which we all know is flat-out garbage. One of the things that Dr. Kehoe did that was probably a good idea, but he didn't think through entirely, was he didn't... So the the state government did a, a canvas of the town to see how many people were affected by the the four-day smog, and they got a rate of about 42% of people who said that they were negatively impacted through their health through the smog. What Dr. Kehoe did was, instead of canvassing the town and asking people if they were affected, he only asked the workers at the steel and zinc works, which, in theory, seems like a good idea, because his idea was that continued long-term exposure would give them a worse effect than being um, out in the town and not being constantly exposed to it, and that the one four-day exposure meant that it wasn't enough pollutions in the air to cause all of the health problems from um, the zinc works. So he only asked the workers in the plants, which, you know, seems like a good idea. We do know that Long term exposure tends to cause more problems, but short term exposure also cause, causes problems. But that's not the point I'm trying to make here. His problem was he only interviewed those workers, and when he only interviewed those workers, those workers tended to be worried that if they said that the smog negatively affected their health, then they would risk their jobs because they were afraid that their employer would find out that they said, yeah, the zinc works smog. ...caused problems for me and for my family, so they lied, which is a thing that you have to take into account when you do health uh, surveys like this, is you have to take into account that people are afraid to answer truthfully because they are afraid of negative consequences coming down for them, especially something like this, where your employer has caused a problem, if you admit that your employer has caused a problem... You will lie to protect your employer, but also protect you because you don't want to lose your job and your income to provide for your family. Basically, he came up with a conclusion and then did research that was only going to support that conclusion without really thinking through what would happen if he only interviewed people that worked at the zinc Works. So eventually the USPHS and the state investigators and Dr. Kehoe's investigators and a local advocacy advocacy group, the Webster Society, planned to have a test, two-week test period of the zinc works so that they could get a base reading coming out of the smokestacks of the zinc works to see what the the amount of pollution of different types were coming out in a similar setting to the same time as the smog that caused all of the deaths now obviously this isn't going to be the same situation because they can't just create a temperate for temperature inversion and then test that so they're going to turn the uh smelters on to their full power of what they were operating at when they were doing when they had the smog to do testing to see if the pollutants coming out were at an unsafe level because they had come up with safe levels of exposure for each type of pollutant that was being released. So during this time, they all observed the, the, the zinc works and took measurements all over the valley and all over the town to see what the pollution levels were. The local advocacy group, the Webster Society, reported multiple health complaints across the city and had received so many, they began to tell parents in the region not to allow their children to go outdoors. Interestingly, the USPHS did not report any health complaints at all whatsoever during this test period, and one of the other things that was noted was that the Webster Society and another doctor that had been brought on to investigate the case originally, noted that it did not appear that the zinc works had actually turned the smelters to the level of what they were before the smog happened, because there was a difference in the amount of smoke and whatnot that was being released from the smokestacks. So, there is an idea that U.S. Steel kind of fudged the test period to make themselves look better, which uh, wouldn't shock me in the slightest. This test period basically confirmed for the USPHS that the amount of pollutants being given off by the zinc works did not reach their levels of dangerous exposure, and if the councilmen of Donora thought that the federal report would conclusively pin the disaster on the zinc works, then they were very, very sorely mistaken. The report, preliminary report, because they never released a final report, essentially made zero conclusions. Uh, Well, okay, that's not entirely fair. They made conclusions. Their conclusion was that they didn't know which pollutant actually caused the problem, or which combination of pollutants caused the problem. They kind of danced around the zinc works being the issue without outright saying it. They recommended reducing the pollutants from all sources in the town, not just the zinc works. Which, you know, sounds great in theory. Reducing pollutants is wonderful. Except, that is hard to do it also makes it that much harder to pass an ordinance against the zinc works and the steel plant in town because they're going to pass this ordinance and the plants are going to come back and say well the report says it was all of these problems together so either you place it on all of them or you don't do it at all because we're not going to follow that and we'll close our plant because you are not following the recommendations from the federal government. Basically, it gave the zinc works an out to continue to do what they were doing beforehand, which was the cause of the smog. The USPHS report also blamed weather and topography, which, yes, helped contribute, but that gives the company an out again saying, well, we can't fix the topography or the weather. So let's just hope it doesn't happen again. They did also recommend like a weather tracking system to maybe bring the smelters down to a lower level when they have similar weather coming in, which they kind of did try to do for a while and then completely ignored. And I just want to point out, uh, a large portion of western Pennsylvania also experienced the exact same inversion, and uh, none of those towns had a deadly smog. Only the one town with a zinc plant on it, in it had the uh, death smog. Basically, the report screwed the town of Donora. They didn't have anything to point to and say, this is the Zinc Works' fault, this is what we need to do to fix it. This is the ordinance for are passing to help decrease pollution and smog in the area. They didn't have anything like that, so it just kind of got forgotten. Obviously, this complete lack of anything regarding responsibility taken by the plants angered many in the town. So they sued the company. Eventually, the company settled for about $250,000 spread out over about 80 plaintiffs without taking any responsibility for the incident. I I know that shocks you after listening to all of the other episodes where companies are so ready to take responsibility for events that they very clearly caused. But this low settlement on top of lawyer fees and everything else barely left any of the survivors with any money left over. And... It would only get worse from there. A study in 1961 from the University of Pittsburgh recorded higher-than-expected deaths from cardiovascular disease and cancer in the Denora area. The cardiovascular disease deaths were almost twice what was expected. Which, I mean, to be honest, is kind of expected when you spend four days in a completely toxic environment. We still to this day do not know what pollutant caused many of the deaths in Denora. It's thought to be related to fluoride, but the preliminary report from the USPHS made no conclusion. Basically, they said that none of the pollutants were high enough to cause the deaths on their own, but they may have been caused by a combination of two or more, which is not a conclusion at all and isn't really helpful in any conclusive opinion whatsoever and the zinc works never released their official report or anything like that so we really don't know exactly what killed all those people there is a report of an autopsy that was done on one of the victims that found fluoride levels 10 to 20 times higher than what is normal in people which makes sense because fluoride gas is one of the off products of smelting zinc but we may never officially know what killed those 20 people. The zinc works would continue to operate at the same level until 1957, when it would close after a steep drop in metal prices. The steel mill would then close not long after that. Donora still sits in the same spot to this day, but it never recovered to the population level after the smog incident. Many families moved and never returned. The current population of Denora is about 5,000 or so people. The area the mills were located are now filled with other buildings, and most evidence that the event ever happened is gone, except for a single plaque and a one-room museum of artifacts from the event. In the end, Denora tried to forget the event ever happened. It was not spoken of regularly in the town, but it set off a change in the United States. The Denora Death Fog and the studies afterwards set off the push for the Clean Air Act and the formation of the EPA. Denora even has now has a sign-up in their town that states Clean Air started here. And that brings us to the end of this week's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. As always, you can follow me on Twitter, Disastrous History, spelled Disastrous, H-S-T-R-Y, so history without the vowels. You can also follow me on instagram disastrous history spelled correctly and on tiktok disastrous history spelled correctly you can also send me an email at disastrous at gmail.com let me know how i'm doing let me know what you think of the podcast let me know what you'd like to hear more of as always thank you guys for listening i appreciate it greatly stay safe and remember to check your smoke detector batteries